the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Message and data. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
most beautiful picture I've ever seen is of God on a cross because it was love poured out. It was compassion, mercy, grace poured out for me. I can barely believe that kind of incredible love and the joy of the resurrection where death could not hold him, where death was not the end but the beginning. I've always, as a human person, been afraid of death. None of us likes the idea of dying. Oh, but the grace of Jesus Christ says death is not the end, it is the beginning. This question of love poured out absorbs my fondest attention. It's not unconditional love, it's unfailing love. Did you want to jump in? You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. <laughs> I guess we should tell you who we are. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're Ray and Alexandra Greenlee. And we walk in love. Love with each other. Love with Jesus. Love with you. And we're rejoicing that the month of August is completely covered by you who gave so joyously. And some of the letters that we've received are explosive in joy. And we've been saying, Jesus, thank you. And we've been praying for many of you by name. Everyone who writes to us, I pray for by name. Thank you. It is that sacrificial love that makes the world go round for eternity with Jesus. Now, I'm going to share a story with you today, just beginning to tell that story. It's a story of love poured out. But I want to say first, there seems to be a separation in our understanding. On one side is personal piety. That personal piety is the reading of scripture, prayer, fasting, a focus on righteous living, and rightly so. We're all called to that purity of heart to walk clean with Jesus, to turn away from all known sin. But then what happens when that love does not flow, that everything is consumed on personal piety and the love for the lost is not present, then it becomes ugly. It becomes selfish. The gray 
issue of the gospel is love poured out. Sacrificial love poured out for those who cannot love us, but we love in the name of Jesus. We're called to love, to pour out our hearts in love, one for another and for the lost. Yes, so briefly, we see in Scripture that there's never a disconnect between loving each other and righteous living. For example, in 1 John 3.10, we find, In this way we distinguish the children of God from the children of the devil. Anybody not living a holy life and not loving his brother is no child of God's. And this idea occurs throughout First John. Well, wait a minute. Let's talk about this. Yes. One is living a holy life. That's the piety that I just referred to. And the other is loving his brother. Yes. And as I said, John pretty much repeats this over and over throughout the entire letter of First John. He says in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the dark. But anyone who loves his brother is living in the light and need not be afraid of stumbling, that is, need not be afraid of sinning. Unlike the man who hates his brother and is in darkness, not knowing where he is going because it is too dark to see. And that word hate in the Greek literally means indifferent to. Treating someone like they don't exist. Like they, they're not there. So what we find oftentimes is we have, unfortunately, on the one hand, and many mainline denominations in particular today, is the strong emphasis on love to the point of rejecting righteousness. And then what we find, on the other hand, in more holiness type of circles is the emphasis on righteousness to the point that love is neglected. And Jesus confronted the Pharisees over this issue. This is the same issue the Pharisees faced is they claim to have this perfect individual piety and yet Jesus said they neglected love, mercy, and justice. So the scriptures never see these two things as in conflict. And indeed, what we find both in 1 John and in 1 Peter is that love purifies the heart. So the way that we have a pure heart is through loving others. Which let, let me read that. Yes. It's 1 Peter, 1 Peter, verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience of the truth. That's the piety through the Spirit, in unhypocritical love. You must love one another out of a pure heart, constantly having been born again, not out of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the living word of God, ever abiding forever. Read it out of your translation. Yes, I'll read from the NIV. This is 1 Peter 1.22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. So the problem is we have concepts and then we shape those concepts to our own 
belief system into our own lifestyle. So a person says, I love, but they never sacrifice for anybody. They never lay their life down for somebody because they're too busy earning a living or they're too busy doing whatever they do with their life. Our life, all of us have the same amount of time and the same amount of possibility in Jesus. So what do we do with that? I know the call of the Spirit of God is not to be unbalanced in piety or in love, but to let those two things flow together as one. We're going to share a story with you beginning today, and you may say, well, Pastor, why aren't you reading scriptures and explaining them to us? Because you don't need more intellectual understanding today. You need to catch another picture. You need to catch the picture of of purity of heart combined with self-sacrificing love for the lost and the dying, for your brother and for your sister. So we'll be reading from an incredible book called Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. Jackie is still ministering. The stories that we read today are still happening. She is the founder of St. Stephen's Society. You can find them online. They have expanded their ministry now to several other countries. So we'll read. This details the early, the beginnings of her ministry in Hong Kong in 1966. And we'll also post on our webpage in the prelude to this broadcast all of the information you need to purchase this book. And we would encourage you to purchase it, read it, pray through it, and then hand it on. Yes, so we begin in chapter one, The Trail of Blood. The guard spat into the alley, but nodded quite kindly and allowed me to pass. I left him there squatting in his soiled t-shirt. Having no further interest in me, he removed one of his flip-flops and returned to picking his black toenails. The entrance he was so ceremoniously guarding was almost hidden, and I had to squeeze between two dark buildings as I scrept, crept into this strange Chinese city so feared by the people of Hong Kong. The darkness blindfolded me for a moment. And although I knew the way well by this time, I stepped very cautiously along the narrow lane that was barely wide enough for one to walk. I kept my eyes lowered on the ground for two reasons, to avoid stepping on nameless horrors and so fall into the open sewer, and to avoid presenting an upturned face to the windows above, which intermittently spewed their refuse onto the street below. I clapped my hands to make the rats run, but some of them were so tame that they sat arrogantly in what they obviously regarded as their territory. It took several loud claps to shift them. Then I saw it, a small spot of red gleaming in the filthy mud, and a little way ahead several more drops. It was certainly fresh blood. My stomach gripped into a tight knot for I feared that I knew whose blood it was. Ah, Sor 
had been given to me by a magistrate to look after as a son for one year. Then a triad group, nicknamed Su Fong, came after him to slash him over some unfinished gang business. It seemed that they had found him. As I hurried on, I saw glistening patches ahead, and stepped past two more Tin Man Toy, the watchmen for the triad gangsters who controlled the walled city. They knew me, and yielded as I passed. Their faces showed nothing. I turned a corner into another street, indistinguishable in its foul, broken-walled buildings from the last, except that it contained the main gambling den operated by the brothers of the 14K gang. I continued past the evil archways of the opium dens where more watchers leaned, nodding and dozing, and seeing nothing. The gap between the hovels here was barely an arm stretch wide, so I stepped into a doorway to avoid bumping into a crazed-looking dope addict who was walking somewhere very quickly. Up the next street, the patches of blood lay in clusters. I couldn't run in this stinking maze. It was too slippery and dark, but I was impatient to find the source of the blood. Yet I dreaded it, too. I reached the main street, one of the few that were lit inside the walled city. I had to walk more carefully now as I passed another gambling den, slimy outside with urine-soaked earth. The prostitutes recognized me and called from their orange boxes outside the blue film theater. Miss Poon, will you help us? They put out their hands, the backs of which were scarred with needle marks, their aged faces almost without hope. Then I turned into my little alley to the room I rented and opened at night to welcome the Chinese gangsters. Outside, I found a large dark puddle. The shadowy people around looked unconcerned. Please, what's happened? I asked fearfully. An old Cantonese man shook his head and muttered, Nothing. Nothing. But the others looked away. In a place controlled by triads, you keep your hands over your eyes to survive. It is safer to see nothing, to not be involved. Then a woman appeared with a broom and a bucket and swept the blood down the street until it was absorbed and obliterated. Several barefoot children, babies strapped to their backs, played as if nothing were happening. Full of fear for Asor, I unlocked the iron gate, a protective feature of all Hong Kong dwellings, however poor, and went into our small club room. It was dark, damp-smelling, and hard to keep clean, as there was no water supply for the inhabitants of the walled city. What water they needed had to be carried in buckets from taps and stand pumps outside. Terrible things crawled out of the sewers and across the clubroom walls. I was always more afraid of the large cesspool spiders than the gangsters, but that night, as I sat alone in our room, my thoughts were on Asor. His mother had sold him as a baby to a childless opium addict who was frightened of going to hell without a son to worship his dead spirit. Thus, Asor grew up with a desperate sense of betrayal, longing to be loved, but unable to recognize it when offered. In fact, Granny, the addict's mother, 
loved Asur fondly, but as she was also a seller of heroin, her influence on his life could hardly be called refining. To counterbalance his sense of total unbelonging, Asur joined a triad gang. It gave him prestige and a place to belong. He grew up fighting and earned his first spell in juvenile prison at the age of 13. Over the years, I had come to know of his life and problems and had tried to help him, but he continued to go in and out of prison and was as hopelessly hooked on drugs as was his addict stepfather. I felt that I really loved him, but this love had not changed his life a bit, and so I sat on one of our crude handmade benches in the club and did the only thing I could. I prayed. Five minutes later, a girl burst into my room, panting, Miss Poon, go to the hospital immediately. Elizabeth Hospital. They called for you. Who was there? Is it Asor? I was so relieved that there was some news at last. I just have to tell you to go quickly. Something about dying. The girl disappeared into the dingy labyrinth. She was only a message carrier and knew nothing more. I locked up and collected a couple of boys I knew on the way out. We raced back through the alleys as fast as we could, and once outside the walled city, they hailed a taxi. Quickly, quickly, Elizabeth Hospital. Maybe our friend die. More quickly. Hong Kong taxis need no encouragement to speed and our driver mentally slew the other drivers. He zigzagged in and out of the traffic lanes, driving deliberately with only one hand on the steering wheel, never slowing but crashing on the brakes. At the last moment, my hands were clutched. I was praying and thinking and racing all at the same time. Maybe my friend die, I thought in Cantonese. What a miserable kind of half-life Osor had lived. And how I longed to show him something better, if only he could know that somebody cared. God, please save his life. Let him be saved, I prayed. The driver was by now bouncing up and down in his seat with excitement, and for several terrifying long moments he took his eyes completely off the road and swung around in his seat to observe the macho impression he was making on us. By this time, we were all praying out loud, as if finding the casualty department was a surprise. Our taxi screeched to a sudden halt, and we leapt out to find Osor before he died. But it was not Osor who was dying. It was Autong. It was his blood that had left that sinister trail along the streets, I'd only known Ah Tong by reputation as one of the most depraved gang leaders. He lived off prostitution and used his gang followers such as Asor to make collections from the brothels. Even among his own kind, he was despised because he used to go to parties and seduce young girls and then sell their ruined lives into the rackets. As we waited in the passage outside his ward, I learned more of the story. Apparently, 
The gang had hidden down a dark alley near my room, armed with knives and water pipes. This was reciprocal warfare over a brother who had been wronged years previously. The target was Asor. As Asor moved toward the street with Autong and another brother, he was unaware of the ambush. A knife glinted. The gang jumped and made for their victim. But Autong saw them coming and threw himself in the way to protect Asor. Autong's arm was slashed until it was nearly severed before the attackers left him, lying in a pool of his own blood. Asor, with the other brother, ran home. They fetched a blanket, wrapped up their protector and their gang boss. They staggered with him along the streets until they reached an exit and could take a taxi. After delivering their burden to the hospital, they fled. There are police at hospitals who ask questions about gang fights, and they did not want any report made of this incident. Another brother relayed this story before he in turn disappeared. But the only information I could extract from the nurse was that the patient was almost certainly to lose his arm, if not his life. Sitting there on the hard hospital seat, I thought over what I'd heard. I grew more and more impressed with the behavior of the man. All right, he was evil. He lived a revolting life. But I felt he had shown a rare degree of love. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Ah Tong had been ready to die. I rang up several friends and told them to come to the hospital, and we stayed there all night praying for Ah Tong's life. I want to stop a minute. She's in a wicked city, the inner city, the walled city of Hong Kong. She's a single woman. She had a degree in music in England, a promising career. But here she is in Hong Kong. I only know of one thing that could have brought her to Hong Kong. To cause her to sacrifice her professional life, her music. I only know of one thing that could cause her to sit in a hospital and pray for a man she had never met who was a filthy, wicked, criminal gang leader who had done much harm to innocent people who had murdered and killed and been in jail. I only know of one thing that could have possibly caused her to sit on that hard bench in the hospital. And that's the love of Jesus Christ. That's what the love of Jesus does in us. That's exciting to me. Yes. So she's sitting there praying for this man's life. She has never met him. She has only heard his reputation and seen his filthy work. 
she sits there and she prays. When his family turned up, they stood in amazement at our total incomprehensible behavior. What were we, good people, Christians even, doing praying for their son? To them he was bad. He had left their home young. He had run the streets. He'd organized the gangs. He merited only a turning by on the other side. The sister gave us permission to enter the ward. I heard the Chinese nurse telling the other one, their pastors come to pray. Dressed as I was in old jeans and a sweater, I could understand their curious stares. We were hardly a conventional group come to administer the last rites in the middle of the night. I stood by the bedside and looked at Autong. He lay desperately pale with loss of blood, with drips in his uninjured arm and a huge wad of dressing over the sutured injury. He was deeply unconscious. Afraid to disturb his bandages, we cautiously laid our hands on him and prayed for him in the name of Jesus. He did not immediately sit up, although I believed he might. And as long as we were there, he did not recover consciousness. The bulletins from the hospital each day thereafter, however, were extraordinary. It seemed that Autong was making amazing progress, almost miraculous. And then to our joy, and with the incredulous consent of the medical staff, he was discharged. His release was within five days of the attack. He had made a remarkable recovery, keeping not only his life, but also the full use of his arm. Anyone would think that after this miracle, Autong might be pleased to see one of his intercessors, but far from it. In the following months, if he ever spotted me in the dark and dreary alleys, he would run as if I were the chief inspector after him. He was afraid to see me. But I did get several messages from him saying thank you. Thank me for what? I asked the message bearer, a yellow-toothed youth with a grown-out perm. He believes that your prayers saved his life. The boy was sniffing and sweating and clearly in need of a fix, but he looked at me with respect. Anything his boss believed, he was prepared to believe too. But if Ah Tong believed that my prayers saved him, why did he run from me? The illogicality of it all puzzled me for some time. Months afterward, I found the pathetic reason behind it all. He was an addict and he needed a shot of heroin several times a day. All the time he had been in the hospital, his girlfriend, whom he had originally raped and sold into a live sex show when she was 14, had been bringing him drugs. Atong knew I was a Christian. He knew that Christians were good people, and he knew that drug addicts were bad people. So in his mind, it was wrong for him to express his gratitude in person. He felt dirty, not clean enough for those good Christians. 
It wasn't until several years later that Autong fell across the doorstop of my little walled city room. It was nearly the middle of the night. I do not think he had come through any conscious decision. He looked at me with devil-tormented eyes and blurted out, Miss Poon, I'm desperate. I've tried to kick it so many times, but I can't get off drugs. Can you help me? No, I can't, I said, but I have good news for you. Jesus can. I think you should understand something about Jesus' life. Some years back, you were willing to die for your brother, Asor, and I've never forgotten that. You did something very wonderful. Autong's brows were drawn in concentration as he listened, and his face mirrored his disappointment, hope, and puzzlement. What would you think about dying for someone in the other gang? I asked. Cha! A lump of spit shot from his mouth, and he looked bitterly at me. You must be joking. Your brother is one thing, but no one dies for his enemy. That is just what Jesus did. He not only died for his own gang, but also for everyone in the other gangs. He was the Son of God. He never did wrong, but healed people and made them whole, and he died for his enemies, for us. If we believe in him, he will give us his life, because he loves us. I do not think the drug-riddled mind of Atong understood all of the doctrine of redemption. He was crazy for drugs, and this had been a long speech, but I could see that something had happened. He was absolutely amazed at the, at the idea that Jesus loved someone like him. For the first time in years, something, or someone, had penetrated his mean heart, and he was moved. I hurried him out of the walled city, down to the Kowloon waterfront, across the harbor on the ferry, and up to the small flat on Hong Kong Island. He knew we were going to the church, but quite what he had in mind I do not know, for he looked stunned as we entered the apartment. It was minute by Western standards and not like a church at all. He was standing in what was obviously the living dining room, which was bright and cheerfully decorated, even curtained. Everything was so clean and beautiful, and it felt like a home, not a church. But most extraordinary of all were the people, who were all smiling. There seemed to be a lot of Westerners, as well as a lot of long, young Chinese men, all of whom Autong recognized. There were men he had known in jail. There were men he had fought with or against. There were men with whom he had taken drugs. But now they were all shining and happy and fat with good health. They began to tell him that they believed in Jesus and that Jesus changed their lives. Yao, even you here too? He said as he greeted another friend. Yep, it's true, Atong. They spoke in the equivalent of Cantonese Cockney. You know us. We'd never use this holy talk if we didn't really believe. I mean, well, you'd expect Miss Poon and those priests to spout the Bible and all that, but they've never kicked drugs. They don't know what it's like. 
it got so the pain, the screaming agony, was so bad that I prayed to Jesus like they told us, and it worked. My pain went away, and I felt really changed, and, well, sort of new. I got this strength, like it's called the Holy Spirit, and I spoke in a new language, and I didn't have any pain at all. It was a bit incoherent, but Atong clearly thought, if they can, so can I. If Jesus did it for him, he can do it for me. Atong told us he would believe that Jesus was God and ask him to change his life. Then he prayed, and as he did so, his desperately thin and pain-lined face softened and relaxed. He smiled. The other former crooks looked at one another joyfully. Once more, they were taking part in a miracle. Atong had received the gift of speaking in a language he had never learned, and found that praying came easily. Joy filled his eyes, and as he lay on his bunk bed, he grew more and more at peace. We all joined him and sat with him until he slept soundly. Atong stayed on in the house. There was no need for him to go cold turkey or experience that so tortures the human body that it can result in an addict's death. The term is derived from the fact that when an addict is withdrawing from drugs without medication, as well as severe and painful symptoms, there are fits of cold shivers that cause turkey skin. We gave him no medication, not even aspirin. We did not even give him cigarettes to help him in his withdrawal from heroin. Every time he began to feel a slight pang, he went back to praying and using his new language. His withdrawal period was pain-free. No vomiting, no cramps, no diarrhea, no shivers. With this miracle, Atong began a new life. This opening story so touches my heart. And I want to ask you, are you interested in this kind of love? Are you interested in laying your life down for the lost and the dying? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Have you received the gift of tongues? You're going to find as we go through this that the gift of tongues is not from the devil. That's what I was taught. The gift of tongues is a tool given by the Holy Spirit, both for the building up of the inner man and for the miracle of healing in others. It is an avenue of God's great love poured out. Now, we've been talking about praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost power. Now, both Alexander and myself have been baptized in the Spirit, but we lack Pentecost power. The Pentecost baptism is both for purity of heart, sanctification, 
righteousness. And it is for power to heal the sick, to restore, to build up. And I wasn't going to say this, but please, I need to. We come day by day and we speak and we see just a handful of people respond. I pray that as we share this story in the coming days, something will happen in your heart that you will want to be a part of a ministry that focuses both on piety, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and release for the captive, for the poor, for the wicked, for those sold in sin. If you want to be a part of that, and you're serious, I don't want any curious callers. If you're serious and you want to be a part of that, you'll go wherever you have to go to be a part. It doesn't matter where we're located. You'll drive wherever you want to go, where your heart leads you. So I'm going to give you a phone number. If you want seriously to explore being a part of this kind of ministry, then call me, 703-489-1785. Now, don't call me while we're on air because I won't be answering. We're on air, live. But it's 703 489 1785 This is for those of you who want to pray for the fullness of the Pentecost baptism and you want to experience on one side the purity of heart and on the other side the outpouring of love for the lost and the dying. It's both. And it comes by the power of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Anything you want to add to that before we go to the next chapter? I think that's wonderful. It is really what it's all about, isn't it? Here's this woman in Hong Kong praying for a man she's never met who's a filthy criminal of the worst kind. And she spends with others all night who've never met him either praying for him. And God baptizes him in the Holy Spirit and delivers him from drugs and gives him a new wondrous life in Jesus. Didn't take years. It was now. It's not gradualism. That's a lie of the devil. The deliverance is now. So, okay. I don't want curious calls, please. I want only people who are willing to lay their life down to be righteous before God and to pray for the full baptism of Pentecost power to reach the lost and the dying of this city. 703-489-1785. Now we're going to give you a bit of history about how this all started. Do you want to read that portion first and then we'll come back to this book? 
Yes, I just wanted to add, so when Miss Pullinger first went to Hong Kong, she didn't have the kind of power described in this story. And as we read through the rest of the book this week, you'll see how that came about. But I wanted to share just a brief summary in her own words of how she came to this experience. So she had happened to read David Wilkerson's book, The Cross and the Switchblade, and she found in his book that David Wilkerson would go up to gangsters and say, Jesus loved you. And in one case, the gangster's heart was shattered on hearing those words and his life was changed. So she said, all right, well, I'm going to take this approach in Hong Kong. So she says in the walled city, when I tried it out on my first gangster, I was met with indifference. It could have been Dai Pan, who sat there on a wooden crate watching a gambling den. By then, he had a job as a guard escorting people in and out of the city. But the older and more wasted triad who was on duty that day seemed bored as I repeated the words about Jesus' love. Even when I added, really, for emphasis. Run along and find somebody else, he said. This was disappointing, but it had worked in the cross and the switchblade, so I found another guinea pig. She was an old young prostitute who squatted all day long over a sewer with little custom and no looks. She had no radio, and she could not read. She looked dead before her life had even started. I tried the Jesus loves you routine on her and touched her to show her that I meant it. She looked terrified. You've made a mistake, she said. You don't know who I am. You're not supposed to touch people like me. Looking back now, I can see how ridiculous it was to be walking down alleyways talking intensely of Jesus. Of course, no one could respond to words about Christ. They had never met him and had no evidence of his love. When I checked the Bible, I found Jesus had never done it that way either. Instead of declaring, I love you, Jesus had shown his love through action. He opened the eyes of the blind man, caused the lame to leap for joy, and fed 5,000 hungry people full to bursting. There seemed to be a vast credibility gap between the Christ I was preaching and what I was doing. This was shown in graphic parody when I went with two friends into a walled city street where over a hundred men were sprawled chasing the dragon, that is, taking heroin. Stepping carefully over their bodies, we smilingly gave out tracts which spoke of the love of God and salvation through Jesus. There was even an address where any addict, addict who could read it, and who was alert enough to remember the time, could find out more by attending meetings. Most threw the paper tracks into the sewer, but the canny carefully rolled them up and used them as spills and funnels to inhale the heroin fumes. It was frustrating to read of a man who healed all who ever came to him, who promised his followers would do the same, and yet to be handing out a paper substitute. I wanted to do it like Christ did it. 
I wanted to learn how to heal the sick and see miracles. If this did not happen, the credibility gap would widen into a chasm. Now tomorrow we're going to share with you how this ministry got started, how she boldly stepped out and did what the Holy Spirit spoke to her as just a young woman, too young to even be sent to Hong Kong by any mission society. They all told her, no, you cannot go as a missionary. And of course, while she was there, the missionaries who were there opposed her directly and told her that what she was doing was completely wrong. But we want to share this story of love and compassion and the miraculous moving of God as he released her to do his work with his power. Now, we need that here. I read a report last night of what's happening in San Francisco. As a man described the scene as he walked to his office with his briefcase, laying on the streets around him, heroin addicts injecting directly into themselves the drug. He said, I have never seen any sight like it. Everywhere I looked were addicts, homeless, hopeless people. I spoke to a friend who has recently moved to West Virginia. He said, there is no employment available for most in my area. He said, everywhere families are being ripped apart with heroin. We are seeing happen in America what happened in Hong Kong. If you go downtown D.C., no, you don't even need to go downtown D.C., just go to Northern Virginia, and you'll see the homeless camps, you'll see the lost and the dying. A change has to happen in the way we minister. And it's going to have to change by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to pray for the Holy Spirit and you want the kind of love we're talking about and you want to pour out your love, call me today, Ray Greenlee or Alexandra Greenlee. Our phone number is 703-489-1785. We're out of time for today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. And I'm Ray Greenley. And I'm Alexandra Greenley. We'll be back tomorrow continuing the story Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. Slow boat to China. You can listen to this message again at our website, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. You'll also find past messages there, blog posts. You can contact us or send a donation through the webpage. We'd be happy to hear from you. We've laid our life down for you. Every day we come and speak the word. But now it's time for some of you to join us and pray with us for the Pentecost baptism of the Holy Spirit. We love you. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.